James chapter 1. You guys saw on day 1 that we asked you to read the whole book of James. That is going to be on day 1 of every week. I hope you'll see that it's really not that hard. It's five chapters. It's not a list of names like Nehemiah last semester. It should be a little bit easier to read. But I want to remind you, too, that if you're finding that hard to get done, you could also listen to it on almost any Bible app. There's a way to listen to it. So you could do that on your way to work or while you're getting ready in the morning or while you're doing dishes. Um, Find a creative time to get that in. I think you'll find that doing the repetitive reading of a book uh, really enriches your understanding of it. So make that a priority. So if you read it through, I wonder if you saw an outline in the book of James. If you, you know, I know we did an outline of chapter one, but did you actually see the outline in the book of James? Trick question. There is no outline in the book of James. (laughs) There are very few um, commentators that would actually show you an outline. That was really hard for me. I was on this struggle bus in about month two of studying this book, still trying to find some order for it, just giving me something to like run with, some tracks. But there's really not much of an outline in this book. Now, what there is, is there's definitely themes. And there's main ideas that James is trying to get across to his audience. The closest thing that we have to an outline is that chapter one tells us what he's going to be talking about for the next four chapters. Maybe you picked up on that. So what I'm saying is that everything we talk about today, everything that you just talked about in small group, we're actually going to talk about it again in the next four weeks in a greater depth. So it's kind of like another week of an overview. I actually want to start today, however, reading the parable of the sower. So this is one of Jesus's most well-known parables, and I really think it'll help illustrate James 1. So just listen as I read it. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So to quickly summarize this, there's four different soils, and the seeds were scattered among all these different soils, and each one had a different response. The first one, along the path. That soil was so hard that the seeds could not even germinate. The process of growth couldn't even start. Secondly, it sprouted quickly, but roots didn't go deep. So when the sun rose, that hot Middle Eastern sun, it scorched the plant. The third seeds, uh, it sprouted, took a quick root, but was infested with weeds that choked it. But the fourth soil produced a harvest. It produced a harvest and it matured. So Jesus was teaching with a metaphor, with an analogy that soil, as you've probably heard, are the people's hearts. I think we should consider these as we unpack what James is saying in chapter 1. So right away, starting reading from verse 2, 
James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying that along the road to maturity, you will face trials, so hardships and sufferings, losses. This is not how you want to begin a letter, is it? I mean, you don't want to open a letter and hear James say when you face trials rather than if you're going to face trials. Wouldn't you rather hear at the beginning of a letter written to you that life is good. Life is going to be peachy keen. And wait for it. Hashtag blessed, right? Isn't that what we want to read in a letter? Or if it's got to start with that news then don't we want the author of the letter to tell us how to overcome these obstacles? Why couldn't James make his letter more like a self-help book? James, where's the solution? I I don't see the solution to this problem that you're bringing up. Where is the part about sidestepping the persecution or avoiding the drought or preventing the famine, preventing the persecution? James doesn't include that. Instead, what he says is, okay, readers, brethren, these trials are going to be part of your life. So here's how you need to, here's what you need to know. Here's how you need to respond. What he does do is he invites them to lean in to their struggles and to include it in the count. To include it in the count of other things that bring joy and delight. So that list that we all have, right? That list that has health and wealth and popularity and success and friendship and promotion. He's saying on that same list, put trials and tribulations. And he invites them and us to focus our attention to our response to the trials and the purpose loaded in it. He then starts to unpack a sequence. The sequence shows how trials can progress or how they can result in maturity. So let's trace that order from chapter one. He says, the testing of your faith. So that hard thing in life right now. If it's embraced, if you lean into it, it will make you steadfast. So ladies, when you don't give up or you don't give in spiritually when there's hard stuff in your life, you will become Steadfast, you will become one who endures, one who perseveres. And that endurance then brings you to the point of perfection, that point of completion. Now, at this point in my notes, I have a couple asterisks. I have a couple asterisks to make sure I take a moment and talk to my fellow tribe of achiever women, the tribe of perfectionists in this room, my sisters. I know you're out there. Mostly because we like to talk about the same things, and so we get together. If you are a perfectionist and you read a phrase like this, you read a verse like what James is saying here, you start salivating, don't you? You get all exciting. It's like we're saying, you're giving me a how-to on how to be perfect. And this caffeinates our already fully charged achiever personality. You're telling me that James is like my life coach. And by the end of the summer, I'm going to impress everybody with how very little I lack. I think that we need to slow down a little bit. 
The truth is, is that a practical book like James can excite those of us who want to see results, right? And that's okay. It, it helps us who want to get over the weak or flaccid aspects of our faith. But I think we need to slow our roll, maybe even be warned or cautioned. But as we get into the letter of James, as we get really close to the text of God's word, what we will see is that the way to achieving this maturity is going to stretch us, it'll humble us, and it would maybe even quiet us. Ladies, this road to maturity, it won't always feel like progression, but it will be for our good. And we ask the question in our homework, what is James saying when he says that we can be perfect? Right? That, that would be an interpretation question. What does he mean? Can we really be perfect? And we use the good study tool of letting the Bible teach the Bible by turning to Colossians 4, where Paul used that same word. And he added to our definition. We're saying that what perfect means is to be able to stand mature, to be complete fully assured to be sound spiritually. I want to pause even just for a minute and let you know that I don't teach this text lightly. I don't speak about sufferings and trials lightly. This is not just a theological point that we're just going to barrel through with nothing but an academic mindset. James says that to be mature, we have to embrace your trials. I looked up embrace on thesaurus.com. One of them was bear hug. James wants us to bear hug our trials. That's no joke. I mean, when I pause and actually think of the trials that are represented in this room alone, right, the losses that you guys maybe are going through sicknesses and someone that you love, job loss, or or even just change. But how about the whole category of things that are quiet and unseen by most of us on a day like this? How about the loneliness, the doubt, the depression that sits so heavy, the anxiety that keeps us up at night? Maybe it's your singleness But maybe for the woman next to you, it's her marriage. Maybe for some of you, it's a barren womb. But for the woman across the room, her hardship is the life that her children have chosen to to live. This is not going to be a one-week fix where we walk out of here completely victorious over our trials and our hardships. This book and the study is going to give us many opportunities to sit and to wrestle with these sufferings, and to wrestle with the truth of who God is. It's going to invite us to to look at these things and to ponder the many questions and reactions that James draws out. But for today, can I ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with the test of trials? Would you say that you're considering it joy? Would you say that you are enduring? The question that I think James wants us to consider, what James wants us to believe from this first chapter, is that something good 
could come from it. That something could sprout up, something good could grow even amidst your pain or your confusion. Recall that parable of the sower. That first soil, it said that the soil was so hard that the seed could not even germinate. And pain and suffering can do that in our lives, right? The thing that we want to change, the situation that we so want to change that just won't change, sometimes it can make our heart, our hearts so hard that it can no longer foster seeds of faith. So for today, at least, could we ask Jesus to soften our heart toward him and toward the pain in our life? And ladies, watch as he grows in you a faith. Watch as he renews in you a faith. And be cautioned also by that second soil. The second soil that says that it's a faith that endures for a while, but when tribulation and persecution comes, it, it arises immediately. He falls away. Falls away and falls short of the maturity that I know we want to obtain. Well, the truth about this first test is that nobody has passed it perfectly. Nobody's shooting 10 for 10 on this test. Nobody except Jesus. Did you guys see this week how Jesus counted it all joy? He didn't smile in a disingenuous way as he carried his cross up Golgotha. He didn't have a cheesy smile and say, I'm fine when his brothers disowned him, when his disciples abandoned him, when he was mocked. No, that's not what it's about. But what it means is that Jesus considered the joy that was set before him, that was ahead of him. He considered the reward that was accumulating in heaven. And therefore, he endured hardship well. Listen to the James 1 language in this Hebrews verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. (coughs) James says that to be mature, we must embrace our struggles. Secondly, James introduces that to be mature, we must understand riches and poverty correctly. Starting in verse 9, he said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So let's recall the context of James's original audience. The dispersed church was largely poor. They were going through both persecution and famine. But there was a small percentage of wealthy people among that dispersed church. And because this disparity was so great, there was mistreatment of the poor by the rich. James wants us and his readers to understand that, yes, poverty and trials are a test for our faith, but they're not the only test. Riches, too, are a test. 
So for us to move forward and maturing in our faith, this is a test that we must pass. We, ladies, need the right perspective on riches. One commentator explained it this way. It's like James is saying to the poor man, hey, poor man, you're better off than it seems. And he brings up Jesus's words, kind of hinting at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying if your material poverty can create in you a poverty of spirit or a spiritual bankruptcy, then you are heirs of the wealth of heaven. So if you are experiencing lack, if you are experiencing debt, or if you are destitute, let it create in you a spiritual hunger. James says to the poor man, you're better off than it seems. But to the rich man, he says, you're not as secure as it seems. And to the rich man, it's like he gives them this time stamp. He's saying the beauty of the security that you feel because of your riches, it's short-lived. It will burn up. Maybe not tomorrow, but you definitely can't take it with you to heaven. And as he will unpack in later chapters, he shows us that the test of riches is really a difficult test to overcome. Many will fall short. And so therefore, the rich are at risk for ever maturing spiritually. James is leveling the playing field for this first generation of believers. He levels it. He says, rich, you're equal with the poor. So start acting like it. Start treating them in that way. And perhaps he's even saying to the poor, hey, quit despising the rich. Quit despising your own status. But hold to the truth, both of you, that Jesus exalts the humble. So for today, can I ask you, how are you doing with this test? Have you experienced it? Does your poverty make you doubt God's goodness? Or conversely, does your wealth make you forget God? See, the deceitfulness of riches are like the third soil in Jesus' parable. Jesus explained it like this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So maybe your faith has taken root, but your riches have wrapped themselves around you, and they're starting to choke you. Maybe your wealth is in your bank account. Maybe it's in your 401k, but don't think of it only in terms of money. Maybe it's your abundant personality or your riches of good friends or you're like doubly gifted or you come from a good family. Consider all of these ways that you are rich. And be careful because riches are like weeds that can spiritually choke us if we do not obtain perspective on them. And just like the first one, the first test, nobody has passed this test perfectly, except for Jesus. Jesus passed the test of riches, right? Was it not Jesus who provides an example for us of embracing poverty? 
Did he not show us how to abandon our riches and become like the poor man when he left the riches and the comforts of heaven and donned human, plain, humble skin? Jesus says to the poor, when he says, boast in your exaltation, what he's saying is rejoice, poor man, because you are like Jesus. Jesus who boasted in his poverty and for our sake became poor. And then he says to the rich, rejoice because you can do what Jesus did. You can consider your riches as nothing. The third point I see James drawing out in chapter one is that to be mature, we must not be deceived. As you guys read through chapter one, you probably saw that that word was used repetitively. He uses it in verse 13 and again in verse 16. So if we are to not be deceived, we need to ask the question, what is James saying that can deceive us, that can trick us, that can fool us? Well, there's a lot here, but just a couple that we're going to discuss today. I think that we can be deceived about who God is. In verse 16, we see that. See, in the context of who James is writing to, think of this. When you are in a hard time, a time of uncertainty, are you not more likely to be deceived that God isn't good? Or even that God is tempting you with these bad things in life. God took my baby. God took my job. It's God's fault that I faced this temptation with another man. And we get deceived, we get duped into thinking that God is holding out on us. And really what we're believing is that God is behaving like a human. That's what we're believing, that God is behaving like any other man. In the homework, we looked at Eve's example. Specifically, what we saw was another sequence, right? We saw James lay out another sequence as he talked about the progression of sin and temptation, and then we saw Eve follow the exact same one. It's actually sprinkled throughout the Bible. But that sequence was they were lured away, were enticed by something. We take it, and then we experience death. Did you guys see it in Genesis 3? Here's Eve. She's in this extravagant, rich garden, having everything she needs. And she has an opportunity to discern between good and evil, lies and a truth. And she failed that test. Why did she fail it? Because the desires within her were deceived by the words of the deceiver, right? The desires inside of her were enticed. They were seduced by the words of the forked tongue deceiver, the serpent. And she believed hook, line, and sinker that what is forbidden would actually bring her good. She had that moment to choose between take or trust. And she took. Aren't there not times when we too are deceived, almost like hypnotized to believe that our desires are what will make us happy? Don't we believe the lie that the way to count it all happy in life is to avoid the struggle in life? 
to jump over it, to sidestep whatever feels like famine to us. That's what Eve believed. But I think there's something else here too. Another way that she was deceived. She was deceived about who God is. That he's malicious, that, that he's holding out on her, that his way for her is not good or benevolent. But there's also a lie that she believes about herself. She believes not just that she can be God, which we've talked about before, but she believes she's the victim. Right? As that story in Genesis 3 progresses, don't we see her place blame? Adam then places blame. Right? There's just this blame shifting going on. And James even draws that out in chapter 1. When something bad happens to us, when we face a temptation and give in to that temptation, what do we want to do? We want to blame someone. And if there's no one else to blame, we often blame God. This is a tricky thing to bring up because not everything that's hard in our life is because of an evil desire within us. So I want to be careful when I speak of this. There are bad things that happen in our life for different reasons. Some bad things that have happened in our life is because we live in a fallen world. And sickness is just part of it. Some things that happen in our life that are hard or maybe because we're being persecuted for doing something good. How about adoption? Our sisters who have adopted and have just made their life harder because they are doing something that honors God, that is risky. But there is another category, things in our life that are a mess, that are chaotic because of sin that is in our own heart. That's what went on with Eve. And that's what goes on in our heart when we doubt. So what we need to understand is who God is. We also need to understand who we are. And that order is important. We come second. We have to understand who we are in light of the truth about God. Ladies, we are not the victim when it is our sin that has put us in a certain situation. So when we are wandering away to eat a piece of forbidden fruit, when we're conning our way to, to get ahead or to get attention in a certain social setting or, or to entertain an affair or to feed an addiction, it is because something evil on the outside wants to attach itself to something evil on the inside. Did I say that right? Something evil on the outside wants to attach itself to something evil on the inside. We need to see that our sin often works in tandem with the deceiver. How do we combat these lies? Well, with the truth. What is the truth about God? He is not like us. He is holy, meaning he is very different from us. He does not behave like mere man. And what James showed us is that he is pure. He's the father of lights, we read. That means that there is no darkness in him. Therefore, he can only give good and perfect gifts. Another way that we can be deceived that we will just briefly touch on this morning is when we believe that being a hearer 
is enough. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James will hit this again later. But here's how he explains it in chapter 1. He says, when we look into God's word, it's like looking into a mirror. So how many of you looked into a mirror this morning? Right? Most of us, right? Maybe some of you brand new moms. You're like, nope. (laughs) That's okay. You'll get back to it. Okay. So if when I looked in the mirror this morning... I noticed that I had mascara under my eyes and a curl on the wrong side of my head because of the humidity and maybe food in my teeth. But then I walked away and came to Bible study thinking, I'm adorable. (laughs) Right? That would be a tragedy, right? It would be such a distraction. Coming here thinking, oh, I look fine. I've got it all together. James wants us to see that that's what happens when we look into God's word. We let it tell us about ourselves, about our true situation, about what's going on in our heart. But then we walk away and don't do anything about it. When we walk away from God's word and never let it move us to action, then we're being deceived. We're telling ourselves that we look different than we actually look. So what do you think about life right now? Are you facing this test? Are you being deceived in any way right now? Our instruction, of course, is to look to the example of Jesus. As we did in our homework this week, when the forked tongue of the devil again came, when he came to Jesus, led out in the wilderness, with the same lies, that he gave Eve in Eden, he recalled the word of God, right? He recalled the word of God when the devil tried to trip him up. He held tight to the character of God, and he remained totally immovable in his faith. Contrast that with Adam and Eve, who had everything that they could want. They were in this extravagant, rich garden. They had everything, and yet they failed the test. Jesus, who had gone 40 days without eating or drinking, was in a barren desert. He passed the test against the deceiver. What an example to us. What a comfort and what a hope. Who was in the better position to stand up against the deceiver? Not the rich man, but the one who had gone without, who was fully depending on God. So how do we go about running this marathon of faith? How can we overcome these tests so that we may obtain maturity? Well, simply put, from the text, I see that wisdom is our answer. Hopefully in small group, you guys talked about it at length because we don't have time to go about it now. But we talked about what is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? I think that wisdom is the application of knowledge. Knowledge, think of as like raw information. That's how someone said it on Sunday night. Wisdom is what do we do with it? How do we apply that knowledge? Wisdom is what will allow us to overcome these tests. So first of all, it will enable us to pass the test of trials. Ladies, do you want to respond well to what's hard in your life, big or small? Ask for wisdom more than you ask 
for God to change your circumstance. Wisdom will then grant us perspective on wealth. If you desire to pass the test of riches, if God has richly blessed you, which he has, and you don't want to get choked out by that, ask for wisdom, ask for eyes to see it how he sees it. And then wisdom allows us to grasp who God is. So if you desire to have full assurance of who he is, if you want to be able to discern between good and evil, to know what should be black and white in this very gray world, ask for wisdom. But the sobering truth that even then, even when we're praying for wisdom, even when we are bonding together and in God's word and maturing together, the sobering truth is that we will fall short, right? We're going to have bad days. We're going to have blind spots. Even with this whole book of instruction and encouragement, we're going to fail some tests, right? You and I, even this month, are going to want to avoid what hurts, very natural. We're going to want to take shortcuts in the marathon of faith. We are going to doubt and therefore spend seasons of life in the chaotic waters of mistrust. And we will have times this summer even when we foolishly forfeit a heavenly crown for an earthly one. What do we do What do we do when we're tempted to fail or when we do fail? We do what James did. We just keep considering Jesus. We just keep setting our gaze on Jesus. And our hope will follow. Our strength will follow. And our hope to be that fourth soil will come true. That fourth soil that is described like this. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's be that soil that hears the word and understands it. Let's understand how Jesus did this. Jesus didn't avoid what was hard. He did not avoid Calvary, the pain or the abandonment of it. He did not sidestep his crucifixion. Let's understand that Jesus did not doubt, but was immovable. Do you understand that Jesus was was not double-minded, but was our example of being single-minded when he said to the Father on just hours before he hung on a cross, not my will, but your will be done. And may we understand that Jesus refused that earthly crown of jewels and instead accepted a crown of thorns. That's our good news from the story of the Bible. Let's pray.